Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hey, good morning, New Spring. Hey, I just want to say how excited I am to be, a, uh, to be finishing up this series, Song for the Anxious Mind. Uh, I'm extremely excited for this, but I also know that this is a little bit ironic that I'm up here talking about anxiety, uh, because this has been a lifelong struggle for me. Um, I mean, I've, I've had anxiety for as long as I can remember. I know, I, I mean, I'm about as familiar with anxiety as President Trump is familiar with Twitter. I know it really well. Um, <laughs> Uh, but in all seriousness, though, I just want to give a disclaimer really quick, and that is that if you struggle with anxious thoughts, or if you struggle with keeping calm in tough situations, or you struggle with just trying to figure out, what do I do with this thing called anxiety, I just want to let you know I am in the same boat. So I'm not here to say that I have all the answers, because I don't. I'm not here to say that I have it figured out, because I definitely do not. But what I am here to say is that God loves you very much and that he has a lot to say about this subject. And so I am absolutely amped to be here to close out this magnificent series that we have been in. I mean, I could tell you stories all day of times when my anxiety has gotten the best of me. Probably one of the funniest stories that I can remember actually happened a few years ago. Right after my wife and I got married, we moved into an apartment complex. And I remember there was a particular night in November of 2015, when, uh, you know, Elle asked me, she was like, hey, you know, can we just stay in tonight and just watch a, you know, a romantic date night movie? And so I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I suggested Lord of the Rings, because obviously that's the obvious choice. <laughs> um, and the weird thing is she said yes. I, I don't know why, I don't know why she said yes. She's just a good wife, you know, so she puts up with me. Um, but I remember we were watching Lord of the Rings, and all of a sudden we started hearing this popping noise outside. You know, it was just pop, pop, and, and it, it, you know, we sort of ignored it, but then it just got louder, and it got louder and louder. And Elle turned to me, and she was like, what is that noise? And I was saying, oh, you know, it kind of sounds like a motorcycle engine. It sounds like someone's sort of revving their Harley because it kind of makes that pop noise. And, you know, and, and, and we just sort of ignored it, but then it got even louder and even louder. And then eventually we couldn't even hear each other from across the room. I mean, it was so loud. And it went from being a sort of pop, pop to being pop, 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 pop. And naturally, you know, uh, being the rational human being that I am, I went from picturing a couple guys, you know, riding a motorcycle to thinking a gang war was going on right outside our apartment. And uh, here's the thing, I know what a gang war sounds like, all right? I come from a tough neighborhood. I'm straight out of Andover, all right? <laughs> we go hardcore down there. I mean, I know all about the streets. Okay, I know all about the cul-de-sacs, all right? Um, but I, I thought for sure there was something happening, you know? So I called the police, 
And I got them on the phone and I was like, you guys got to get down here. It's getting real out there. I don't know what's happening, but something's going down. You know, you got to get over here. And, uh, you know, they sent, they sent some people down to check it out and everything. But meanwhile, I'm freaking out. Like, I'm going into emergency mode. You know, like, I'm doing somersaults on the ground. And I'm like, oh, take cover. And she's, like, taking cover in the bathroom and stuff. And, and I, like, barricade the door with an old guitar amplifier. Like, that's home protection or something. I don't know. And, I mean, and I'm just hunkering down getting ready for Armageddon, right? And I get a call back from the police department. Now, when you get a call back from the police department, that's funny. And, and, you know, they call me back, and there's this really sweet lady on the other line, and she's at the police department, and she says, um, sir, you know, I just want to let you know that we checked it out and that we sent some cars down there and want to let you know that we got your call. Uh, sir, I just wanted to ask you, did you know that the senior center right by your apartment has special events every November? And I was like, no, I, I did not know this. And she said, well, sir, I just want to let you know that you and your wife are going to be absolutely fine. You're going to be just fine because tonight's special event at the senior center just happens to be a fireworks show. You're going to be fine. As she hung up, she started to laugh. And let me tell you, I've never heard a cop laugh so hard in my life. In my defense... This was November, not July. November, not July. I did not expect a fireworks show in November, but I guess old people can set off fireworks whenever the heck they want. <laughs> when, I mean, when you're old, who cares if it's July 4th? You gotta live, you know? <laughs> that night, I remembered I called my dad and I said, this is the most embarrassing night of my life. And he said, yeah, it is, but man, that would make a really funny sermon illustration. <laughs> And you know what's crazy is, I could tell you a million stories like that, of times when my anxiety just flew out of control. And and I I can tell you a million stories of when I just couldn't get my mind to think rationally, you know? I couldn't get my mind to think straight, and I let my fears get the best of me. And so, like I said, I'm not up here to tell you how it is. I'm not up here to tell you that I have it figured out, because I don't. But I do believe that God just has so much to say about this. And I want to let you know that this sermon is not the sermon that I originally planned to preach. Um, You know, we've been in Psalm 139 up to this point, and I thought that I was going to close out Psalm 139 and just give a very general message on anxiety. That's what I thought. But one morning, God just woke me up, and I I woke up in a sweat late at night, and my heart was just pounding, and I just felt God leading me to preach a different message. And that's a scary thought when you have something lined up for God to say, hey, you know, I want you to just sort of put it in the trash and start over. But I felt God leading me to to preach a very specific message because I started thinking about the fact that my generation in particular, particularly young people, seem to have an especially difficult time with the topic of this series, anxiety. Whether you watch the news or you read social media or you have conversations with young people, it seems like the cat is out of the bag on this issue of anxiety and depression and mental stability. And I just, I couldn't go back to sleep. I just walked out to my kitchen table and I felt God lead me to do two things. Number one, write a list of some reasons why my generation struggles with anxiety. And number two, open up Psalm 23. Why that was the case, I don't know. But when God tells you to do something, you gotta do it. You know, 
So I sat down and I wrote out a list of just some reasons that I believe young people struggle with anxiety today. And I opened up Psalm 23. Now, the first one I understood, writing down the list, that makes sense, okay? But the second one I didn't completely understand because here's the thing. Psalm 23 is the second most famous scripture in the Bible behind John 3.16. What the national anthem is to America, Psalm 23 is to Christianity. And I've, I've read that, that scripture a million times. I've memorized it. I've recited it a million times. There's sort of a rule that if you grow up Baptist, that when you're a kid, you get candy if you recite Bible verses. I've earned so many Reese's with Psalm 23. And so I thought, man, there's, there's no way I'm going to see something that I haven't seen before. I know this scripture in and out. But I did what I felt like God wanted me to do. I wrote down the list, and then I opened up Psalm 23, and I looked at the list, and I looked at the scripture, and I looked at the list and the scripture, and I just broke down and wept. Because the psalm was addressing the list point by point by point by point, by point, and I just was like, okay, I have to change this. We're going a new direction. There's a message here. There's a message here. So here's the thing. If Psalm 139 is a song for the anxious mind, which I believe it is, Psalm 23 is a song for my anxious generation. And what I want to do today, this is going to be a very simple message. I'm just going to walk us through some reasons why I believe my generation struggles with anxiety, and then I'm going to walk us through Psalm 23, and we're going to find out what, is, what does God have to say about my anxious generation, and what I'm going to do is right now, I'm just going to go down the list. I wrote down some reasons the other day why I feel like we struggle with anxiety, so I'm just going to go down the list, and here's the thing. I know we're all, we all have a different story, but you might find yourself somewhere on this list. Here's the first thing. We feel the pressure to have more, know more, and do more, but it seems like we'll never be enough. Number two, we rare, this, is a big, this is a big one. We rarely get to experience true physical, mental, and spiritual rest. Number three, we live in a world that's turned upside down where the stuff that used to be simple isn't simple anymore. Number four, we've experienced a breakdown of family relationships. And number five, we wonder if God is with us or not. In my opinion, these are the big five. And I know that there's a lot more to this. There's only so much that I can cover in a brief message. And if you struggle with anxiety today, please, please, please reach out to talk to somebody. If you wanna get connected to someone to talk to about it, definitely call us and we wanna get you connected with someone. There's only so much I can address. But I feel like if I had to narrow down the main reasons why young people struggle today, that would probably be the big five. And what I wanna do is I want us, before I start Getting into this, I just want us to look at Psalm 23 in its entirety because I want you to start thinking about what it has to say and just start meditating on it. And I know that all of you in this room, there's a lot of people that have this committed to memory. There's a lot of you that have this committed to heart, but I just want to read it really quick so we can start thinking about it. This is what David wrote The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
It's one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry, scripture, and prayer all put together in one. I feel like sometimes when I read Psalm 23, I feel like my blood pressure comes down a little bit just reading it. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of scripture. But what does it have to say to my anxious generation? What does it have to say? Let's take a look at the first reason why I believe a lot of people in my generation struggle. Here's the first reason. We feel the pressure to have more, know more, and do more, but it seems like we'll never be enough. We need to hit this right out of the gate because so many young people today struggle with this topic. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think technology and social media have made this much worse, fair? I mean, I, I, think, I think this is a fact. I believe that there has never been a time in human history where people have compared themselves to other people as much as right now. And I think about what social media has done to us. And I'm not, saying so, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with social media, but I am saying this. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. When Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook on the campus of Harvard in 2003, it was actually, did you know it was actually founded as a joke? It was a joke. And the joke was this, it was a bad joke, but Mark Zuckerberg and his college roommate decided to post pictures of students side by side and have people vote to compare which one was more attractive. That is how Facebook began. And 16 years later, I, I think there are some good things about social media. I think that it has done some good things in this world, but I think to a certain extent, it has not evolved much from the way it began because so many people compare their lives to other people and, compare the different, and, and, and feel that trap of comparison. And it's, it, it's something that my generation has struggled with so much. I mean, really at the end of the day, sometimes I feel like social media has become a popularity contest that has about as much depth to it as a TLC reality show, you know? When you really think about it, and my generation, millennials, which would be the generation where, you know, between 23 and 38 years of age, and also Generation Z, which is the generation after my generation, we are so sucked into the world of social media that it's like we're comparing ourselves to other people 24-7. Why? Because our life is on display for a million other people, and their life is on display for us all the time. And it's difficult. How do you sort through that? And there's this lie that a lot of young people have bought into that if you wanna do great things in life, if you wanna be a success, you gotta have, got have the followers, you gotta have the right clothes, you gotta be an influencer, whatever the heck that means. You gotta have enough money, you gotta have this, you gotta have that, you gotta have the right connections, you gotta have the right education, you gotta take the right selfies, you gotta do this and this and this. And my generation is like, whoa, 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 too much. And so many young people are thinking, am I ever gonna be enough? Am I ever going to be enough? I want to read the very beginning of Psalm 23 because David is going to set us straight. I want to read the first line right out of the gate. This is what David says. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. I lack absolutely jack. It's beautiful. When you think about the materialistic culture that we live in where everybody's trying to one-up each other, can we just let that line settle on us like a healing rain? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. A lot of Bible scholars through the years have tried to understand why Psalm 23 is so powerful. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You want to know my personal opinion? I think the reason why Psalm 23 is so powerful is that this is David giving us his story in a nutshell. 
This is David giving us his testimony. When we do watermark, we have people who are about to be baptized, we hear their story in a nutshell. Psalm 23 is David's testimony. And when he writes the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, I wouldn't be surprised if he was thinking about a story from his past. My guess is that you probably know the story of David and Goliath. We've all heard the story millions of times, but there's one particular part of that story that we don't hear very much or we don't talk about very much. I mean, you know how it, you know how it goes. David is a, is a shepherd boy. He's probably about 13, 14 years old. And his dad, Jesse, says, hey, I want you to deliver some bread and cheese to your brothers who are soldiers out in the field. So basically, he's the pizza delivery guy. It says bread and cheese. When you mix bread and cheese, what do you get? Pizza. So there you go, pizza in the Bible. You can win a bet on that one, honestly. Um, I'm getting off subject here. But uh, so David delivers the food to his brothers who were soldiers. And when he gets there, you know what happens? He sees this nine foot tall giant, Goliath. And Goliath is out there, you know, he's talking trash about the Israelites. He's talking trash about God. And David's like, all right, let's go. I'm going, I'm taking this guy out, I'm sick of his talk. And the soldiers, there's soldiers around David who are like, whoa, 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 okay? You're not gonna do that. But David's like, no, 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 I can get him, I got him, I got a slingshot. And so the soldiers are like, all right, well, you're gonna have to go ask the king for permission. You're crazy, but you could have to go ask the king for permission. So he goes and asks King Saul for permission. So he walks into the office of the king of Israel, which is ironic, because King Saul should have actually been fighting the giant. I mean, he's the tallest man in Israel. He's the strongest man in Israel. It's really King Saul's job, but he's hiding in his tent. So little shepherd boy David walks into King Saul's office and he's like, all right, I am determined. I'm gonna kill this giant. I need your permission, but I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna whoop him. And King Saul takes one look at this shepherd boy and he's like, no, you're not. You're not taking out that giant. Are you kidding me? And David says, no, 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 you don't understand. I have a slingshot that I've been working on. I can hit the left eye out of a gnat at 50 yards. I'm good. I know what I'm doing. And, and you know what? The Lord is my shepherd. I like nothing. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to take him out. And King Saul is like, look, first of all, you're crazy. But second of all, you can't just go out there with a slingshot. You got to have the right weapon. You got to have the right shield. You got to have the right armor. You got to have the right helmet. You got to have the right stu the stuff. You, you can't just go out there with a slingshot. And so Saul actually puts his armor on David. He gives him a chance to see what it's like to be all, you know, soldiered up. He gives David his sword. He gives him his helmet. He gives him his shield. He gives him his armor. And what's ridiculous about this is that David is probably about five foot six and Saul's about seven feet. And it, may, it doesn't fit. David walks around in Saul's armor and he's like walking around like this because he can't even see out of the helmet. He can't even move. It doesn't fit. It's bulky. It slows him down. And here's the biggest problem. David knows that he's not going to be slaying any giants wearing that armor because you can't load a slingshot when you're walking like this. And you can't, you can't pull back your slingshot and let it go when you can't even move. And you're not going to be killing any giants wearing Saul's armor. And so David has a choice to make. What is his choice? Either listen to King Saul who tells him that he will never be enough without all this stuff or listen to God and take it off and go fight the giant. And David makes the right choice. I wanna see this on video. 
But 13-year-old David looks at King Saul of Israel, and he says, thank you so much for the offer. Thanks for letting me try on your heavy armor, but it's okay. I don't need it. Take it off of me. Get this stuff off of me. I don't need it. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I've got a slingshot. I've got God. I'm going to go out and beat that giant. And so David takes off the armor, and you know the story. He goes down to a stream, gets a few rocks, prays to God, and he slays the giant without even getting a scratch on his body. And maybe you'd say, Stephen, I get it, all right? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. But Stephen, you don't understand. If I want to do great things, I got I to make sure I have enough money. I got to make sure that I look good enough. I need to make sure that I have the right friends and that I make the right connection and that I get the right education and that my social media profiles are perfect and that I, I know the right people. And, I may, and, and, and you're just throwing yourself into a frenzy. If you're so worried about all those things, that's like David trying to go out and fight the giant in Saul's armor. It's nice to have, but it doesn't fit you very well. You don't need it. It's extra stuff. And at the end of the day, it's because it doesn't fit you, it's actually going to keep you from slaying the giants of life if you obsess over those things. When, as a generation, are we going to be like David and say, look, thanks for the offer, but I'm good. I don't need all this extra fluff. I got God. And I know that he is sufficient. And I know that he is good. And I know that he has given me everything I need. And I know that I am complete. For all of us young people, we need to know, don't buy into the lie that we're always missing something and we always need the next thing. And that we always need the next, always need the next this and the next that. Here's the thing. If the Lord is your shepherd, we, if the Lord is our shepherd, we lack nothing. We lack nothing. We are complete. We are whole. That, to me, is everything. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Here's the second reason a lot of my generation is stressed out. We rarely get to experience true physical, mental, and spiritual rest. Hello, millennials. For a lot of us, this hits close to home, right? I mean, just think about, think about this. The very next thing that David says in Psalm 23 is this. This is really powerful. David is talking about God. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. This is one of the most beautiful, poetic descriptions of rest in the Bible. You know, the first thing I notice about this, this text is that David says, God makes me lie down. He doesn't say he asks that I lie down. He requests that I lie down. He says, it would be nice if you lie down every so often. No, David says, he makes me lie down. Why? Because that is David's way of saying that rest is not a luxury. It is a necessity. So many people in my generation are running around wondering why we feel so anxious, and yet, we don't, and yet we're running around because without rest, without really understanding the concept of rest, and, 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 and you know, maybe you'd say, I feel like you're kind of talking about something that's semi-important but not super important. Let me, let me talk about this. Do you realize that after God created everything in the universe, after six days, on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. The God of the universe who wrote the code for DNA, who created the human brain, who made the Milky Way galaxy, that God... He rested. If that God needs rest, how much more do we need it? And think about this. 
In the books of Exodus and Leviticus, when the law was given to the Israelites, God did not say, it would be nice if you guys rested a day a week, or hey, you ought to do this every so often. No, it was in the law. God said, you will rest. You will put aside your work. You will put aside your stress and rest. But here's the biggest thing. When David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. Do you realize that David is giving us three levels of rest? I believe that David is giving us three levels, physical rest, mental rest, and spiritual rest. Let's talk about that first one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I don't think you have to work very hard to decode that one. That's David talking about physical rest. He's talking about sleep. He makes me lie down. I feel like there's a lot of young people today who could use that first one. A lot of us are running around saying, man, I don't understand why I'm so stressed out and I'm so burned out, and yet a lot of us are running on what, three, four hours of sleep? I mean, it, it's kind of obvious, but at the same time, it's not obvious. You know, and, and, and you know, there's actually a lot of science on this about, where, about the fact that you know, my generation, because, we're, you know, because we just tend to have a lot of technology, it's actually messing with the circadian rhythm of our brains, where it's actually making it more difficult for us to get decent sleep. And maybe you'd say, Stephen, you don't get it. I'm a college student, okay? When you're in college, the party don't stop. Here's the thing. If you don't stop the party, eventually the party's going to stop you, okay? So at some point, at some point, you got to get some sleep. You got to get some rest. But here's the thing, David takes us to a deeper place because notice the second thing David said is, he leads me beside quiet waters. Quiet, quiet. David's talking about mental rest. You know what David is saying here when he says he leads me beside quiet waters? David is saying, God, you lead me to a place where all the noise and the distractions are put away for a while and I can mentally rest. The other day, I had a breakthrough. I don't have a breakthrough very often because I'm not that smart, but I had a breakthrough. I was lying down on my couch at home at about six o'clock, and I opened up my phone and I started reading the news, which was my first mistake. And I thought that about five seconds passed by, but then I looked down at my phone and I realized it was eight o'clock. I had been on my phone for two hours. And here's what I realized. For two hours, my body was at rest. I was lying down on the couch, but, at, but my mind was not at rest for a second. I think one of the reasons my generation is anxious is that the idea of mental rest is so foreign, is so foreign to us. I mean, we're so plugged into the devices all the time that there's always too much noise, there's always too much distractions, and we're constantly trying to maintain all these different things. And maybe you'd say, Stephen, you don't understand. I mean, I have profiles on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Tinder, and these things must be maintained at all times. You don't understand. It's got to be, I got to make sure that they look good and that they're right. And here's the thing, I'm not knocking it, okay? I'm 25, I'm in the same generation, I get it, I see it, I'm on, I'm on a lot of the same social media platforms. But if you only listen to one thing I say all day, please, please listen to this. Your virtual life is not nearly as important as your real life. Never sacrifice too much of your real life for your virtual life. Life, your virtual life 
is just a bunch of lines of digital code that are stored on computer servers somewhere in Silicon Valley, California. Your real life is a collection of beautiful days that God has blessed you with that you want to actually go out and live. Sometimes, sometimes we have to turn off the phone and turn on our lives. Sometimes we have to put aside all the noise and distractions and say, hey, it's nice, all of these things. It's nice to have a virtual life, but the most important thing is my real life. The fact that God has given me days to go out and live and enjoy. Sometimes we got to go outside. Sometimes we have to watch a sunrise. Sometimes we have to put aside the technology and say, hey, God has blessed me with more than just this phone. God has blessed me with more than just these digital codes that I'm putting in a computer. Because guess what? We live in a marvelous world that God God has created for us to actually live in. When David says, you lead me beside quiet waters, what is he talking about? He's saying, God, you lead me to a place where I can put aside the noise for a while. Man, my generation could use some of that. I could use some of that. I'm preaching to me right now. (laughs) But David gives us another level of rest. What does David say? He says, God, you restore my soul. You refresh my soul. What is that? That is spiritual rest. What is spiritual rest? When you and I, when we get into the word of God every morning and we pray and we seek his will, that is God hitting the reset button on our spirit. That's God saying, hey, I know you got challenges to face today, but if you come to me and we talk and we have a conversation, I'm gonna give your soul, I'm gonna give your spirit a chance to reset. Wow. David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Wow. Man, we could use a dose of that. Here's the third reason why my generation can be stressed out. We live in a world that's turned upside down, where the stuff that used to be simple isn't simple now. I feel like this is pretty self-explanatory. I think we all know what this is about. And I know that there's a lot of things that stress out young people today. I think some of the things are financial, you know? I mean, you think about the cost of an education today. I mean, let's be real. I don't think that previous generations were ripped off as much with the cost of education as my generation is. I mean, you think about this. The average yearly cost of public college right now is at 10000 the average yearly tuition at private college is at about 36. There is no word in the English language to express how unbelievably stupid that is. I mean, there might be a word, but this is church, okay? <laughs> and I'm not saying that college education is a bad thing. Absolutely, go out and get your degree. I did that, I think it's important. But my generation, it's amazing how we've been ripped off with universities that are acting much more like credit card companies than universities. So we have to put up with that. We have to deal with a job market that's really hard to break into when you get your degree. Dating relationships in 2019 are unbelievably complicated because technology makes everything weirder than it has to be, amen? And, you know, world politics and world events are stressful. And a lot of millennials are asking the question, what do you do in an upside-down world? What do you do in a world that is complicated and it's not simple anymore? I want to read the next part of this psalm because I feel like it speaks to that. 
David says, he guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I want to talk about this last line. A shepherd always had a rod and a staff for two different purposes. The rod was a symbol of protection because it it was basically a weapon. I mean, you could use a rod. Like, for instance, if a lion, tiger, or bear, oh my, was trying to take a bite out of your sheep, you could take a rod and whack him and tell him to go away. The staff was a symbol of direction. It was a symbol of a shepherd's ability to lead his sheep in the right direction. If my generation needs one thing in an upside down world, we need a God who can give us protection and direction. We need a God who is able to give us protection and direction. David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's talk about that first one for a second, the protection of God. I know we live in a volatile world. I mean, I used to have a news app on my phone and I, I don't anymore because I got sick and tired of my phone buzzing every time something went wrong in the world, you know? I mean, a squirrel could fall out of a tree in Bangladesh and five seconds later, it would become a push notification on my phone. And after a while, I just got sick of it. I was like, you know what, forget it, I'm done. But I know we live in a volatile world and a lot of people in my generation feel like, what do you do in a world that's so unpredictable and so difficult? And I understand that, I get that. But I was just thinking as I was writing this message about how many times God has intervened just to protect my family alone. I've thought about times where he has stepped in and done incredible things. When I was really little, you know, God miraculously saved my older brother, Jonathan, from carbon monoxide poisoning. I was thinking about the fact that my dad was in a car wreck once where if the traffic would have been just a little bit closer behind him, it would have been a fatal crash. And what's interesting is I believe there are many, many, many more times where God has protected me and my family, and I'm not even aware of it. And I think the same is true for all of us. I think if if we knew how many times God sent his angels to intervene on our behalf, I think we would be a lot more grateful and a lot less worried. You know, we live in a world that's volatile, but we have a God who is strong, who can protect us, who knows what's in our best interest. And maybe you'd say, well, some bad things happen to Christians sometimes. And that's true. And the Bible is very upfront about that. The Bible is real about that. But the Bible is also real about the fact that our God is the God of angel armies who's always by our side, who's always there to protect us. And we don't even know how many times he has stepped in on our behalf. And when David says, your rod and your staff, they they comfort me, the rod of God, the protection of God is still as strong now as it was 3,000 years ago when David wrote those words. And then when David talks about the staff of God, he's talking about direction. He's saying, God, you are able to lead me in the place that I should go. You know, Moses, when he led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, his staff was a symbol of his ability to lead people. And the staff of God is a symbol of his ability to lead us. I think one of the reasons why young people today are so anxious is that there's just, it's just so complicated out there. You know, dating relationships, complicated. Education, complicated. Technology, complicated. And a lot of young people sort of feel frozen. You know, they're like, I don't know if I should take a step this way or take a step this way because there's too many options. But you know what the great thing about God's leadership is? Is that what does a great leader do? 
A great leader is not always able to tell people the whole story of how their life is going to go, but a great leader is always able to help people take one step in front of the other in the right direction. That's what a leader does. And when David talks about the staff of God, he's saying, God, you were the God who was able to give me direction where I don't know the whole story and life is complicated and the world is complicated, but God, you give me the strength just to put one step in front of the other. David says, God, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here's the fourth reason why I believe my generation struggles with anxiety. We've experienced a breakdown of family relationships. And I know that this doesn't apply to everybody here, but I know it definitely applies to some of us here. And there's no way that I could give a talk about young people and anxiety without covering this important subject. Some, almost every conversation that I have with young people about anxiety, almost always family struggles come up. And there are times, not always, but there are times where I'll talk to a middle school student or a high school student or a college student, and when I ask them about their experience at home and they tell me, I don't have any words, I'm just speechless, I don't know what to say, except is there anything I can do? And maybe you understand this because maybe this has been a part of your life and you're wondering, does God have anything to say to someone who's anxious because I, because you've experienced this problem. I want to read the next line in Psalm 23. Check this out. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Look at this. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And maybe you'd say, Stephen, I don't understand how you anoint my head with oil has anything to do with family relationships. It doesn't make sense. You have to know David's story. You got to know David's story. You see, have you, have you ever thought about the fact that David's home life was a train wreck? <laughs> have you ever thought about that? I mean, first of all, he had to do all the chores that his brothers didn't want to do. He had to do all of the dirty work in the family, and everybody else got to do all the cool stuff and be on the front lines and be soldiers. David was the afterthought. He was the kid who had to watch the sheep when everybody else was fighting the battles. And oh yeah, in, in the Bible, it doesn't seem as if any of David's brothers we do not have a record of any of David's brothers saying a kind word to him. But we do have a record of the opposite. When David went to visit his brothers and he said, hey, I'm going to kill Goliath. I'm going to take him out. You want to know what his oldest brother said, Eliab? You want to know what he said? This is what Eliab said. Eliab said, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now watch what David says, because this is, what, this, is, this is how you talk to a crazy person, all right? David said, what have I done? Can't I even speak? Can't I even talk? You want to talk about somebody who knew what it was like to have family dysfunction? I think David definitely knew what it was like. But that's not the hardest part. The worst part is this. When David was very young, God told the prophet Samuel that he wanted to anoint a new king. The only problem was he didn't tell Samuel who the next king was going to be. He just said, I want to anoint a new king. But God gave Samuel a clue. He said, it's, I want you to go find a man by the name of Jesse because one of his sons is going to be the new king. Well, Jesse is David's father. And sure enough, Samuel goes and finds Jesse and he says, hey, I want to have a talk with you and your sons. God has told me something important and I want to have a talk with you and your sons. Now, one thing you need to know is that at this point, Samuel is a rock star 
in Israel. He is the spiritual leader of Israel. I mean, everybody wants to get close to him. Everyone wants to talk to Samuel. So I'm pretty sure when David found out that he and his brothers and his dad were going to go meet Samuel, I bet he was bouncing off the walls, you know? I bet he was like, Samuel, Samuel, oh, I've heard his messages. I've seen him speak. He's incredible. I've heard about his prophecy, and I've heard about this and that, and and we're going to get to meet him? Wow. But then David gets the news. Everybody in his family will get to go meet Samuel except him. He gets left behind. You know what bothers me? I think that when Jesse met up with Samuel, I think that he knew that God was going to do something special for one of his sons. I find it significant that he didn't think David was going to be the one. I think that hurt more than anything because David is left alone and he doesn't get to come to the party. And I'm sure that felt terrible because David's having to stay behind. Meanwhile, Samuel meets up with David's brothers And he has the anointing oil because, again, Samuel knows God wants a new king. So he has the anointing oil, and he knows that one of these sons is going to be the next king. So Samuel gets his oil ready, and he sees the the oldest son. And he looks strong. He's tall. He's just, you know, he looks like he's on the cover of a magazine or something. And so Samuel's like, this must be the guy. But then God says, nope, I don't want him. And so Samuel goes to the next son, and God says, nope, not him. And then the next son, nope, not him. And then the next son, oh, no, not him. And then the the next son. And eventually Samuel's embarrassed because he runs out of guys. He's like, he turns to Jesse and he says, is this all you got? Is this all you got? And Jesse's embarrassed, and he's blushing, and he's saying, well... There is one more. I mean, he's kind of the run to the family. I mean, he's watching the sheep. And I, I didn't really feel like he needed to be here today. Samuel says, you go get him because we do not eat until he gets here. They went and got him really fast. And David, you know, he's out there in the pasture. He feels like everyone's forgotten about him. It's sort of like Cinderella not being invited to the ball, you know. And he feels like, what, does anybody even notice? And then a messenger comes to him. And he says, David, it looks like you were invited after all. And David follows the messenger and he walks up and there's his dad and his brothers who didn't even think he belonged there. And then he sees this powerful man of God, Samuel. And I want to see this on videotape. I want to see this old, wise man of God, Samuel, lock eyes with this little shepherd boy. And Samuel looks at David and he says, son, I want you to kneel, please. And Samuel asks God, is this the one? And God says, yeah, that's my guy. I've had my eye on him. He's special. He's something. And Samuel anoints David's head with oil, anointing him king of all Israel in the presence of the very people who thought he didn't even belong there. The next time you read that line, you anoint my head with oil, I want you to know this is deeply personal for David. Because you know what David is saying when he says, you anoint my head with oil? He's saying, he, he's saying, God, you anointed my head with oil when the very people who should have valued me didn't value me. God, you anointed my head with oil when I was disinvited to the party by my own family. God, you anointed my head with oil when I was mocked and treated with contempt by the very people who should have given me love and care. God, you anointed my head with oil when I thought everyone had forgotten about me. 
And David says, my cup overflows, which is his way of saying, God, I'm so blessed. I don't even know what to do with myself. I can't even contain it. I am so blessed. For those of you who have anxiety because there were some people who were supposed to give you value, identity, encouragement, and love, but you didn't get that. I want you to know that just like God anointed David with oil, he wants you to know that even when others haven't valued you, he does. Even when others have disinvited you, he has invited you to his table. Even when people who should have cared didn't care, he cares. He cares so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for you and he loves you, he loves you, he loves you so much. David says, God, you anoint my head with oil. I am valued, I am loved, I am cherished. Even when other people didn't see it, you saw it, you saw it. Wow. Well, I better wrap up because I'm already in overtime. Here's the last reason why my generation struggles with anxiety. We wonder if God is with us or not. And I'm not just talking about my generation. I'm talking about all generations here. Is God with us? Is he not? It's something that we ask ourselves so many times. Is he with us? I want to read the last line of the song. And this is my favorite line. David said, surely, God, your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As I was working on this message this week, I was thinking, when, when in my life have I been the most anxious? And the second I asked the question, I knew the answer. It's kind of weird when you ask yourself questions, but I'm weird, so, you know, I do that sometimes. But the second I asked the question, I knew, I knew. For those of you who don't know, uh, my wife and I have two amazing little kids. One of them is, uh, my, my oldest, Sophie, is two and a half, and my youngest, Zeke, is about a year and a half. And um, you, know, you know how it is when you have a girl and then a boy. The girl sort of fakes you out because she's so nice and polite and proper that you think parenting is easy. And then you have a boy, and he's rowdy and bouncing off the walls, and you're like, oh, Lord. Um, but it, being a dad has been the, the most amazing thing in the world. I can't even put it into words. But... Um, before Zeke was born, you know, we had the sonogram process because, you know, you go through a few different sonograms. And a few weeks into the pregnancy, uh, we were just getting a routine, or El was, not me, El was getting a routine sonogram. And, uh, you know, uh, the lady who was doing the sonogram said, hey, you know, uh, he looks healthy, he looks great. But then all of a sudden she noticed something and then she did this thing where she kept zooming in. And that's, not, that's usually not a good sign. She kept zooming in, zooming in, zooming in. And then she saw something and she said, hey, um, I don't want you to freak over this or anything, but you know, there might be an issue. I th he's going to have a little bit of a challenge because it looks as if he'll be born with a cleft lip and palate, which is actually a very uh, common birth defect. Uh, some people you might know who were born with it, uh, Peyton Manning actually was born with a cleft lip and palate. Um, you know, Joaquin Phoenix was also born with one, so some people you might know. But Elle and I didn't even know what it was. I mean, we had to go Google it. Um, but basically, a cleft lip and palate is you kind of have a little bit of a gap here on your lip, and then the, uh, the palate, the, the roof of the mouth, is split open. And so it, it, there's no barrier between your nose, your nasal passages, and your mouth. And it requires surgery. And when I found out that this was gonna happen, I was anxious. And I was afraid, but I kind of said, you know what? It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. It's going to be all right. 
And then a few months later, we had our first appointment with the surgeon. And the surgeon explained to us that, you know, he's going to have a surgery, and then he'll have another surgery, and then a few years later, he'll have another, and then another, and another. And that was hard to listen to. And I was anxious, but I said, you know what? It's all right. You know, we're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. And then he was born. And the day he was born, I forgot all about my anxiety because I was just like, this is so amazing to have this little guy come into the world. What a blessing. But then the hardest, then, then it got really difficult because a few months later, it was time for his first surgery. And nobody should ever have to hand their four-month-old over to have surgery. It's just something that you shouldn't have to do, but we had to do it. And we had an amazing surgeon. She just did an amazing job. But, and I was anxious, but I said, you know what? It's okay. It's good. We're going to get through this. But then the hardest part came, the second surgery. And the second surgery is the most difficult with cleft lip and palate because that's when they do the most work inside the roof of the mouth. And I wasn't ready for this one. I, I was not ready because, you know, during the surgery itself, we got updates and stuff. But there was a time where we were asked to go back to the recovery room. And um, I wasn't ready for what I was going to see when I walked in the door of the recovery room because, like I said, this is a major surgery. And my son was laid out on a bed, and he just looked like he had just been through the worst experience ever because he had, you know, the scars, and there was, you know, there was blood, and he was crying, and he was inconsolable, and, and, there, and he was in a lot of pain even though they give him drugs and stuff. And the nurse just said, hey... All you can do is to pick him up and just sort of just keep walking with him because that might decrease the pain just a little bit. And I, I started to do that. You know, I picked him up and I started walking and I sort of walked in a circle around the room. But here's the thing. Every so often, you get to a place where all the anxiety that's been building up just goes, you know, you just panic. And everything that I've been holding on just exploded. And I had a just, I just basically just went off. I mean, uh, while I was carrying Zeke, there was a nurse that had to stand there and listen to this. But I was just like, God, I am so angry. I started praying to God. And I wish I could say I was praying some sort of flowery prayer like, oh, thou mighty God, thou art amazingeth. You know, but no, I was praying an angry prayer. You ever pray an angry prayer? Just like, I was like, God, what the heck? Why is he going through this? You know, why is this happening? I don't understand it. This is wrong. This is messed up. Why is he, why can't I trade places with him? Why is this happening? And I'm carrying my son and he's crying and I'm just letting God have it. And my anxiety was the highest it has ever been in my entire life. And I thought that I was just going to fly off the handle the rest of that day. But as I was praying this angry prayer, all of a sudden, this overwhelming sense of God's presence just filled that hospital room. And I don't know how to explain this, but I felt like while I was holding my son, my heavenly father was holding me. And I felt this peace that I can't explain. There was not a bone in my body that wasn't anxious, but I felt my anxiety level go from 150% all the way down to 0%. And I, to this day, have no explanation for how that can happen except God. And as I was working on this message, and by the way, Zeke has made a full recovery. He's done amazing. He's thriving and he's doing better than ever. And so for all of you who are praying for him, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. But as I was working on this message, I was, I was thinking about that day. And I was, think, I was just asking God in my spirit. I was like, God, how did that happen? How did my anxiety go away like that? I, I've never seen that happen. 
And it's like God tapped me on the shoulder and was like, didn't you read the last line of the scripture you're preaching this weekend? And I thought, you're right. Let's take one more look at this. David says, God, surely your goodness and love will follow me, what? All, all the days, all the days of my life. It was like God was saying, Stephen, wait a second, you don't understand what happened in that hospital room? Stephen, don't you understand that I said I'd be with you all the days? Don't you realize that I didn't say I would be with you just on the days when everything makes sense? Don't, don't you understand, Stephen? I didn't say that I would just be with you on the days when your mind is right and you're thinking straight and you've dotted all your I's and you've crossed every t all your T's and you think life is just peaches and cream. No, Stephen, I'm not just gonna send my goodness and love to be with you on the good days. I said I would be with you all the days, even those days when you think anxiety is one, even those days when you think the devil is triumph, even those days when you feel like you got nothing left to give, I will be with you all the days, all the days, all the days of your life. All the days. David says, surely your goodness and love will be with me all the days of my life. For those of you who feel like anxiety has won, I want you to claim that verse. I want you to read that verse, and I want you to make it your own, because the truth is, God doesn't just send his comfort to you on days when you think everything's cool. He sends it to you on those days when you feel like you've given up, and you don't know who to turn to. That's when God will remind you that he's, he is with you all the days, all the days of your life, the good and the bad. David said, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And then what does he say? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just wanna pray over every single person in this room who struggles with anxiety. Father, I pray that you would give us the peace that passes understanding. I pray that you would help us understand how you are with us every day, the good days and the bad days. And I pray that you would give my generation, my anxious generation, I pray that you would give us the strength to know that you are there and that it's gonna be okay. Father, I just pray for anyone in this room who just feels like anxiety is one, I pray that they would just know that it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be all right. You're with them, you are with them. Father, I pray you would give them an overwhelming sense of your presence and your love. With every head still bowed and with every eye still closed, I just wanna, I just wanna give you an invitation because everything I've talked about today, everything I've talked about, everything I've mentioned comes from having a relationship with God. And if you don't have that relationship, if you've never accepted Jesus into your heart, do not leave this room. Do not leave this room without making that decision because, because God loves you and he cares about your experience. He cares about what you've been through. He cares about the anxiety you face. He cares about all of it. If you want him in your life, I'm gonna pray a prayer really quick and these aren't magic words, but these are just words calling out to God saying, yes, I want you. Yes, I want you in my life. And you can pray it out loud or you can pray it silently, either one. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I know that I've done wrong things. I know that I've sinned. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe you sent your son to die for my sins. And I believe that he arose from the grave. Please come into my life. 
forgive me and change me from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, there's a card in the seat back in front of you called a talk to us card. You can just check the box that says you accepted Christ and take it to one of our info centers, or you can text 97, pray to 97,000. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.